0: This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm Dave Moten, I'm the author of Mindframe, and I am the narrator of the chapters, and with me, as always, is producer extraordinaire Brent Van Tassel, um, Brent is one of the co-founders of the Podbelly Podcast Network, and this show is a Podbelly original. If you like this show or you're just looking for some great podcast uh, content that you can download, then go to podbelly.com and look at the directory, and you'll be able to find some great shows that you can uh, download on whatever uh, app that you happen to use. Um, remember, we do a sit-down episode every single week where we discuss the chapters um, that we've that we've just covered. So myself and Zach Smith and Brent sit down. We usually have a sip of whiskey and we talk about everything from the technology involved to the research that was done to writer's block and writer's inspiration and all things writing and all things mind frame. So if that's interesting to you and you like those very first ones, um, they're now just at the dollar level of patronage. So if you go to patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast, if you give as little as a dollar, you get all of those uh, sit down episodes. They're usually about 45 minutes long. Um, We have a lot of laughs. We uh, spit a lot of theories. We ask uh, user questions or listener questions that that you pose to us. And we have a lot of fun. So it's sort of a a second podcast behind the podcast. And uh, like we've said recently, we reduced the price for that for just a dollar. So give as little as a dollar. And you've got access to all of that great um, content. So this chapter, we come back to Captain Claire Campana, who, where we last uh, left off, she had just met the Alpha who had boarded her ship. And she was finally giving a speech to the entire crew and then taking over. As soon as the speech was done and she had taken over the ship, she was waiting to get orders from the Alpha to begin her actual mission to supposedly track down a Deviant Alpha. So that is where we left her, and that is where we'll find her as we begin this chapter of MindFrame. Chapter 27, Captain Claire Campana, 2142. Campana finally sat alone in her office. Something about being captain and the decorum it demanded kept her from putting her tired feet up, though it would have felt amazing. The office was a small space meant for solo work. It could accommodate two others on the opposite side of the large desk. For a full debrief or a planning session with her whole senior crew, she'd use the larger ready room. Indeed, she preferred the ready room, found the scope and aesthetics of it more pleasing. But the office was a place of solitude, and after a day of interviews, speeches, and massive meet and greets of the entire crew, she wanted some solitude. Plus which, the Alpha was on board and she had endless pings come through her collar for strange requests from his entourage, requests that Commander Begay didn't have the authority to sign off on. They wanted to use some space in an emergency NDE bay to build a small makeshift hydroponics bay. This led to many questions. First, was it worth it to take four necrogenically dormant enclosures offline? They were emergency coves meant to be used by people who couldn't make it to their own in an unplanned thrust. And what did they need to grow there? Why couldn't they just bring this plant matter on board? And how long exactly did they plan to stay on our ship that they needed to start growing something from seed? The other requests ranged from large to mundane, but all were strange. Odd things that were asked of the president of the mess in regards to the time and composition of certain meals for the Alpha's retinue. They wanted permission to lay carpets on the deck plating that led from the Alpha's quarters to areas of the ship he might visit. Requests to install several dozen NDE enclosures in one of the cargo bays for the Marines that came aboard. Most requests were pretty tame, but there was no formal paperwork chain to apply for approval of such things, so they were all subject to special request form A, which always needed to be finalized by the captain. She had finished reading and signing all of those and was about to reread some crew dossiers. She was impressed by a few people she met throughout the day and wanted to know more about them. Based on her observations throughout the afternoon, her speech seemed to enthuse her crew, and the excited crews served to galvanize Captain Claire Campana. She was going to do something important. She was going to find this deviant, and she was going to get revenge for the death of her father and the entire crew of the Eleanor Grey. She opened the first dossier on her tablet and settled in. She undid the tension on the navel collar and relaxed a few strategic buttons on the uniform. As she finally relented and actually put her feet up on her desk to take the pressure off, her communicator pinged on her arm. She read the melanin and it said simply, Eat. It was from Begay's account. Then another followed almost immediately and said, Food. Eat food. She hadn't really, all day. She had taken a few bites of fresh fruit at the formal lunch, but was too busy meeting and greeting to have anything like a meal. Fresh fruit and vegetables were typically only found on the start of a world Navy journey on a Razor-class vessel. This ship had no hydroponics, at least not before now, so fresh produce was used up first. And then it was on to the more preservable stuff for the remainder of the trip. Campana looked toward the small buffet that normally held a tea set and a pitcher of water. There was an entire platter from the evening party set there and covered with a clear lid. Commander Begay had joked that the food was so good he was going to steal two of the platters, one for his quarters and one for the captain's office. Apparently, it wasn't a bluff. She grabbed a plate from one of the drawers of the buffet and removed the lid. There were fresh cubes of pineapple, both grilled and fresh, Spring rolls with dipping sauces, some sort of stir-fried rice dish tossed with a minced protein and hot peppers, and delicate crepes filled with baked apples. Her mouth started to salivate, and her stomach suddenly outranked her brain. The dossiers would wait. It was time to eat. She fixed a plate and poured herself some lukewarm tea and moved back to her desk. The spring rolls were a simple affair, filled with baked tofu, shredded carrots, and rice vermicelli but they had a spine of fresh basil running through them, and when they coupled with the hoisin sauce and some garlic chili oil, they were divine. She ate three in rapid succession and started to shift her attention to the pineapple. She heard an odd noise just under the sound of the ship's engines, a rattle or a knocking. She paused to hear what it was. She was new to the Eleanor Gray, so it could be a sound that just happened in her office from time to time when the old dame settled in at a certain speed. She heard it again, and she realized it was coming from her door. Someone was knocking at the door. Whoever it was didn't use the bell on the door or their own communicator, and with a handful of civilians on the ship, it made her a bit concerned about deviance and security. Her feet instantly met the deck again, and Campana opened the desk drawer that held her sidearm. She disabled the safety and set it on the table, covering it up with her cloth napkin. Finally, she rested her hand on her teacup, so it was only a few inches away. She activated the door's communicator and said, come. The door slid open and the Alpha stood in the frame. His head was down and one hand was behind his back. The other was raised high above his head and was doing the knocking. It was an odd posture reminiscent of a child knocking to see if a friend could come out and play. Kampana immediately stood up and started to tighten her collar. She did a mental inventory of which of her buttons she had relaxed, but Alpha walked in, holding a handout in a calming gesture. Relax, Claire. Or, at ease. At ease. As you were, as they say. He took in the room and saw the food on Campana's desk. Look at me. Bad timing. You poor dear. You get one chance to take a meal today, and a member of WorldGov comes in and takes a shit all over it. I will leave and we can... No, no, sir, by all means, please have a seat. Ah, ah, the alpha said, you first. I will stay, Claire, but only if you sit and relax and eat your dinner. And keep your buttons loose and kick up your feet and please don't shoot me. His smile unfurled a part of her that was tight as a rope. His eyes, the lines of his face, when they wanted you to relax, apparently you relaxed. May I call you Claire, or does the informality rub against you? He said, rubbing his fists together like two stones in a mill. That is fine, sir. What should I call you? I'd say just don't call me late for dinner, but I am a bit late for dinner, aren't I? I'm sorry, sir. I didn't think to... Have you eaten? Can I get you a plate? You can tell me where they are. The rest, I think I can handle. Oh, and please don't call me sir. I am not a sir. Sir. These are not naval blacks that I wear. I don't outrank you. It just happens to be the case that everyone who does outrank you has given you standing orders to do what I say. Plus this is not that. Thank you for the carpets in the hallways. My feet get mighty cold on that alien metal. As he spoke, he filled up a dish for himself. He took just a bowl of the stir fried rice and some water. She looked down at his feet and saw that the soles were dirty, and he had no shoes. What brings you here, Alpha? I suspect it is the very same thing that brought you here. A long day, coupled with a lack of calories and a brain that's on fire. No sleep for creatures such as us. Now, you need to substitute your own deep-burning need for revenge with this old man's penchant for walks at night, but otherwise, I think we're both up for the same reason. Your commander pointed me in your direction. I knew his grandfather, I think. It occurs to me just now that the man murdered and ate a dog once. Can you murder a dog? Murder most foul? Or is that if you murder a chicken? He asked and squished his head back with a huge smile as if we were laughing at his odd joke on the inside. He sat. His age was completely indeterminate. He could have been 40 or 90 or nowhere in between. Claire suddenly realized how many things the brain tracks to determine age. Skin health, posture, clarity of voice, wrinkles, hand health, tautness of arms, some sort of sparkle in the eye, hairlines, something about the neck and the roundness of a nose. One of these individual elements might seem to be over 100 years old on the Alpha, but three more might seem to be in their late 20s or early 30s. She wondered if his faux-youth was an alien tech that only WorldGov Enclave members had access to, so they could have more substantial ruling years. But no, the leaders lived and died with the frequency of everyone else. And when she tried to tell age through his eyes, he smiled again and rolled his eyes in his head like a clown. Claire asked, While we're both here, did you want to conduct any particular business this evening? For instance, I need to be debriefed on the details of the mission, and I need to be anchored to my framer. The alpha slid a large bite of rice into his mouth and talked through his other cheek. These things will come when they come. You already have a unique bond with your framer due to your father's connection there, so the anchoring isn't a priority. Plus, she's coming a little unraveled at the moment. She needs to work back through a few things before she can be used as a framer. One of mine will take on that task for your ship should you need it. As for the debrief, we need to get to our destination first. Claire thought about all of the myriad reports she'd gotten this evening, but none of them were about her framer, Josephine, being offline. And where exactly was their destination? This was as far from naval protocol for a mission as she could possibly imagine. And where is our destination? Claire asked. The alpha chewed his rice and swallowed. His eyes smiled, and he started to sing, It was an old, challenging children's song that girls would typically memorize and sing to each other as they did increasingly more rapid jump roping on a playground. The lyrics were simply the names of the moons of Jupiter. There were well over 90 now discovered, but the old song was written when Jupiter was thought to have only 81 moons. The lyrics were apparently set as part of oral tradition, and scientific discoveries didn't trump that. In spite of the desire to make him stop singing and have him simply answer the question, Claire couldn't help but follow along with the song in her head. She remembered singing this very song and jumping rope very quickly in the Zona Rosa where she grew up. She would often have sleepovers at Maria Valenzuela's house where her friend's father would barbecue. The food was amazing, but always tasted like absence. The void where her own father should be, instead of trampsing around in the stars. Alpha set his bowl down and continued singing and rose in intensity. He started to mime the work of swinging double Dutch jump ropes until he said, Eupere, Europa, Eurydemy, Ganymede. And with Ganymede, he made a crashing sound and lost the pretend ropes. His own body went limp in a wiggle to indicate someone had fallen but it was great fun, and he was laughing. Surprisingly, Claire laughed at this herself. It wasn't just mime work, it was memory. She saw young Maria fall while she and another neighbor girl laughed, and Claire desperately tried to catch her breath on the grass. She laughed and shook slightly and had to force herself back into the room with Alpha. Eat, Alpha said. Food. He picked his bowl back up to continue. Claire started on a crepe. She didn't know what to do with herself. This man's presence both wound Claire up with an intense stress and set her unprofessionally at ease simultaneously. So, Ganymede? she asked. Ganymede, he said, winking and poking at her with his spoon. What's there? People. Science stations. Jupiter. The past. The present. The truth. A moment in time. The gray. The lariat. A sinister turn. A woman walking through walls. The wind-up, he said, miming a ball in his hand and then slow-motion pitching. It'll really be something. How long before we can do an NDE burn? The sudden shift from nonsense to clarity in the Alpha's words snapped Claire back to the conversation. She said, we've got a couple more days' ground to cover. We have to reach minimum safe distance from a kunga." The radiation and other EM artifacts from the NDE can cause havoc with sensitive systems and calibrations being done. I'd say 38 hours. We still need the permanent roster of your people so we can make sure everyone has an NDE cove. It's not unusual that even a badass Marine has some physical fault that will kill him in an NDE. So we need to see medical files to make sure everyone can withstand the demands of such high-speed travel. And I do mean everyone, Alpha. Here you go, the Alpha said standing up and miming the action of handing Claire a file. He nodded and insisted with his eyes that she play along. Reluctantly, Claire reached out and acted like she was grabbing his file. There was nothing there, of course, but just for a second, Claire had wondered if she was going to feel paper. Fabulous, Alpha said and clapped. You'll find my medical papers are all in order, they're, of course, classified, so just pretend the person who gives you orders got orders from someone who got orders saying I'm perfectly capable of surviving NDE engines. Will that work for you? It's your mission, Campana said. No, 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 Alpha replied, deadly serious. All the parts of him that seemed old were suddenly in the spotlight. This is all the bullshit, Clarabel Campana. There is but one mission, one decision... And it will be yours, right there, he said, pointing out towards the CIC. At the head of the spear, the lariat is closing, he said. He scooped more rice into his bowl, tossed a square of pineapple in his mouth, and walked out of the office with his white robes blowing behind him. Finally, there was something other than pain. There was a stable restoration that the body finally and begrudgingly allowed By the time she felt it, the rejuvenation had made it to her bones. They were no longer splintered and laid flat by the merciless force of deceleration. The bones were returning to their own mostly round shapes, and the NDE was filling them now with marrow. Muscles were being knit back together in the string-like patterns that let them contract. Her organs must have already been dealt with because there was nothing to feel there. Her skin was alive with a billion pinpricks, but her training told her that that was exactly what she should feel. She had no concept of time as this regeneration occurred, but once her hair follicles were burning and her eyes were going round and being filled with glorious fluid again, her pain had downgraded to aches. She had a splitting headache, a bone still mending a fracture. She felt something in her mouth, realized it was a shattered tooth, and the semi-permeable pseudo-fluid slid it away from her. Once the aches were gone, she felt the arms of the enclosure let her slip out of its canal. She was on the deck, healthy and complete. She wondered how her clothes were still on and didn't need to be adjusted much, but maybe the uniform was designed to hold you together in the NDE, like a balloon full of mashed potatoes. She stood and steadied herself against the wall. One by one, she heard the Marines slide out of their enclosures and hit the floor. She took three breaths the maximum number she would allow herself, and stood ready. She remembered the footage of her father falling out of this exact same chamber. She wondered if any of his cells or DNA were used by the machine to put her back on the mend. They must have been. She just lost a tooth in there, but all her teeth were present. The cove must have broken down the tooth and bones and skin to elemental servings and reused them the next time. Perhaps the healing of the chamber merged her bio stuff with that of her father, and the lineage of captains before him, bringing them even closer than kinship or a shared command. As she rounded the framing chamber, the Marines stumbled to their feet one by one and saluted. The final was the tall Pakistani head of security, Major Deshpande. He weathered it well and tried to present himself as if nothing odd had occurred lately, much less his body being in a constant state of distress and repair, the forces of acceleration versus regeneration. He said simply, Captain, and that one word meant infinitely more than a rank in the World Navy. It meant, everything is fine. The Marine had her back, and this was normal. Campana followed the ghost of her father out of the framing chamber's hall. Standard procedure meant she had to salute everyone coming out of their coves on the way to the CIC. She had done so with the Marines, and was now in the officers' NDE Hall saluting them each and helping them to their feet. She passed through the doors to the CIC and the computer signaled a three-note whistle through the entire ship, letting the crew know the captain was on the bridge. Campana was shocked to see that the Alpha was already there, alone, standing in an unobtrusive section of the bridge that seemed made for him. He gave a two-fingered salute and said, Captain on deck she wondered how in the hell he was already here. His NDE chambers were much farther away than hers, and hers were programmed to heal and release the captain first. Either his rank in WorldGov healed and released him first, or he was somehow capable of restoration rapid enough that he simply beat her to the bridge. Within minutes, all stations were manned by the bridge crew. They were alert and showed no signs of pain, distress, or complication. All stations report, Kampana said, standing at her station, near her chair. Everyone started to read screens, listen to reports from subordinates, and sound off to the captain and the rest of the CIC. And it appears we're right where we should be, Captain, Commander Begay said, looking at his own screen. Main screen, Kampana said, and Begay transferred what he was looking at. The left quarter of the screen was a field of data that spoke of velocity, location, telemetry, and negligible damage reports for the old dame. The rest of the screen was filled with the front camera's view of Jupiter. The great red spot was directly in front of them. She thought there would have been more movement in the belly of this 400-year-old storm, considering it was twice the size of the Earth, but maybe the scale played with the sense of motion. The clouds of the planet did their dance. Sandy tans pirouetting around puffs of pure white. It looked like Saharan dunes twisted by deep blue streams, and at times the shapes had depth and prescience, as if God were a sculptor and the incessant clash of gases were his stone. she realized some of it wasn't gas, but oceans of liquid hydrogen larger than her home world. Jupiter, its scale and age and scope, made Claire feel foolishly small. And maybe that was the exact thing she should be feeling. Hanging lazily in the sky to the right of the planet was a massive moon, larger than the planet Mercury. That was their destination, Ganymede. From this distance, it was non-distinct, but compared to Jupiter, it always would be. Claire forced her eyes away from Jupiter and fixed her attention to numerous readings coming in. No casualties, no ship damage. She reached down and made the ship-wide microphone go live, saying, This is the captain. Deceleration complete. Welcome to Jupiter. The crew allowed themselves an audible celebration. They cheered, clapped, and clasped each other on backs. For most, this was their first NDE jump aside from training runs. Alpha strolled directly in front of the view screen. He said, Helm, I would very much like to go there tapping the image of Ganymede on the viewer. At 1,700 hours, they were finally in orbit around Ganymede. Campana had spent a decent portion of the afternoon reading over communication transcripts and talking to people. Every mining ship, habitat, and science station in orbit around Jupiter or housed in the moons had hailed them. It was part of the protocol, of course, but life was also very boring in space a celebrity ship arriving in the neighborhood must have stirred up a hornet's nest of local gossip. Claire was shocked to find just how many people were out here. hundred 100,000 or more, she would guess. Multiple cities on Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede, orbital science stations observing Jupiter and the moons, a small shipyard for local vehicles, mining habitats loading cargo haulers for short and long-range transport jobs. If Earth were suddenly eradicated, The human race would live on right here around Jupiter, and that was only one neighborhood in the solar system. She knew all this already, of course, but knowing it academically and talking to the people without communications lag were two different things. Just like the schism of knowing Jupiter had a great red spot and seeing it with your naked eye out of the porthole in the captain's quarters over lunch. On the bridge, Commander Begay said, we're nearing position, Captain indicating a location on Ganymede they were supposed to fly over. The captain started to respond in naval tradition to let Begay know his information was successfully imparted, but the Alpha interrupted. He had never left the bridge all day, pacing around in the edges of the space where he couldn't get in anyone's way. He looked like a child entertaining himself more than someone bored by waiting. He said, Captain, can you have everyone leave the bridge, please? Perhaps give an order that anyone with sensors leave their station as well. This is between you and me and the ghosts who die by fire. Bridge crew, you are relieved of your stations. You are all on standby. Inform your replacements that they are relieved as well. Report to my ready room so you are very close should you be needed. Begay, ring the mess and get some dinner served in there. See to it that everyone on the ship who is monitoring a scanner... Redirect away from Ganymede until further notice. Aye, Captain, Begay said, as the crew filtered into Kampana's ready room and off the bridge. The Alpha gave a nod to his people, and they all entered the lift and vacated the CIC. The Alpha sang the words, I think we're alone now. But Kampana didn't know the tune. Captain, if you would humor me and scan the following coordinates. She held up a finger for him to pause and she checked the ship's systems. When the last of the sensor monitors was powered down in engineering, she dropped her finger and nodded. Alpha read the coordinates and she scanned them using the interface on her captain's chair. Sensors picked up a habitat structure. It had no power and generated no heat. A deeper spectral analysis showed that it held no oxygen. It looked to be a couple generations old as prefab habitats went. This had likely been here for a few decades. She said, I'm picking up a structure. It's a Nile-type habitat. No power, no Atmo, no heat. You're telling me it's dead? Affirmative. Alpha said, please say those words, Captain. It's important. The habitat is dead, she said, bringing an image of it to the view screen. It was a hexagonal buckyball covered in sophisticated camouflage tarps and slats that made it virtually invisible to any optical scans or pattern recognition software. Such camouflage was not native to a Nile-level habitat. She said, It's nicely hidden. Perhaps it's spoofing our scanners and is active inside? Is this where we'll find our deviant alpha? Not quite, he replied. He fiddled with a tablet and shot Kampana a code sequence. Please fire this sequence at the building's antenna array with a direct beam. Affirmative she said automatically as she slid the code sequence into the comm software. Sending sequence now. She hit the send button on the screen and instantly she had a ping of a return message. It was too fast to be sent by a person. It was a very weak message being sent back. The ship still detected no power. So it must've been a battery array too small for the old dame's sensors to read. The message sent back on repeat five times. Each time, the signal strength was cut by about half. On the sixth attempt, she assumed the power source died. Message received, she said. It appears to be encrypted. Here is the decrypt, the Alpha said. I would suggest waiting a while and then letting your crew come back to work. But maybe don't let them see any of what you just saw. Kampana said, If this is a distress call, even of a dead habitat, I am required to report it to all nearby ships and stations at once. This is not that Clarabelle. I'm truly sorry for what you're about to see, though. I'm happy to welcome you away from the world of black and white and into the world of gray, the alpha strode to the lift and got on board indicating his work here was done for the moment. Claire locked all the recent data down with captain level clearance. She waited until the curvature of Ganymede made any readings on this habitat become impossible and she let the crew come back to work. She relieved herself for the night watch and returned to her quarters. She sat in the sauna for a moment to let the heat do its thing on her capillaries, took a water shower since they were generating gravity, and then poured herself a wine. Claire didn't know why, but she assumed whatever this file was, it would be upsetting, strange, or somehow realign her perceptions. She was dancing with the alpha now. She loaded the message on the main screen in her receiving quarters. The housing on a Razor class was small, but as with most naval ships, the captain's quarters were always capable of having guests and therefore roomy. She relaxed, took a sip of wine and examined the message. It was a video file with audio, a blip of data, really. The power drain for the system down there wasn't due to the size of the file, but the type of tight beam it was firing. She used Alpha's decrypt and it became an active file. She thought of the video of her father just before the Eleanor Gray had burned. She wasn't ready to watch that. Her stomach felt heavy. Maybe she wasn't ready to watch this either. Maybe she wasn't ready to be captain, to call the big shots. The video said it was only 9 minutes and 21 seconds long. Thoughts of the Habitat's crew all being dead came into her head, and she took a large drink of wine to prepare. She didn't know what the video had to do with a deviant messenger, but she hit the triangular play button and sat back. Based on the writing in the corners of the heads-up display, Campana saw that this was dash cam footage from an M34 short fin all-terrain vehicle. That was a ground vehicle typical of the era of a Nile-type habitat. They were tough as nails and still in service throughout the solar system. This M34 was parked in the docking and cargo area of the habitat when the footage was shot. The video started out about as bad as she figured it could get. Huddled in a cluster, center frame, was a group of about 40 people. Roughly half of them were male adults, a quarter were female adults, and a quarter were children, ranging from three to late teens. They wore a motley of civilian dress, not part of any science directive or gov group. Most had empty holsters, and many looked as if they were in a fight recently, eyes swollen shut from melee, arms in splints, bloody bandages covering more serious wounds. People were frantically talking, but the microphone only picked up a garble through the door and window of the M34. A woman was yelling toward someone off camera. She was furious with anger and loud enough that the microphone finally picked her up. That you were stupid or corrupt, but I never thought that you were fucking cowards. Monsters. This has to be against every oath you've ever taken to protect... Then suddenly, from left of the camera, beam weapons ripped into the bundle of people. They sliced holes right through their bodies, tore limbs off of torsos. It was sudden, permanent, and ghastly. The only saving grace was that it was incredibly quick and the children didn't suffer for long. What was left was now a slag of human bodies with the most important animus now drifting through the air on a mist of superheated blood. Five World Navy Marines came into the frame in a firing line formation to inspect the bodies. One took off his helmet and threw up. Someone gave an order a few minutes later, and everyone took their helmets off. A sixth and seventh Marine entered the frame. A major was talking to the person giving the Marines their orders out of frame. The major took his own helmet off and was close to the camera. He looked Chinese and was pale and sweating. He had the weight of combat hanging on him as if he had just finished a hard fight. He also looked disturbed by what they just did. A man in a World Navy combat spacesuit came into frame and patted him on the back. His own helmet was tucked under his arm. The helmet and collar of the spacesuit showed a captain's rank. Eventually, he turned to where the camera could see him. It was a young Bill Campana. He wore his captain's pips, but it looked like this was a few years before he'd have taken the helm of the old dame. Claire dropped her wine glass on the carpet. What did she just watch? Her father just slaughtered civilians? They must have been deviants, obviously, but killing them was against any kind of law she could imagine. And the children? He was the only one who looked relaxed in the wake of this. He held a hardened tablet that looked native to the habitat. He did something on its controls as he put his helmet back on and then used the controls on his wrist to magnetize his boots for support. The doors cracked open and then swung with a burst as all the air swam from the dome and into the thin atmosphere of Ganymede. The Marines gasped and struggled to find their helmets. Two managed to get theirs back on, but Claire's dad shot them one at a time with a beam rifle. It sliced through their torsion skirt as easily as it did the children. He cut through their torso with one beam and then fired a second beam directly into their faces. The ease with which this beam destroyed human flesh was one reason these weapons were illegal and only used by black ops teams. Once the marines were all dead, he holstered his rifle on his back and used the tablet to swing the doors shut again. As the two massive doors slowly slid themselves sealed, he walked out to the surface of the moon alone. He activated his comm unit and spoke, looking to the heavens, to whatever savage admiral had given him these orders and planned to pick them up after they were complete. The doors closed, leaving him outside. The footage ran for another 7 minutes before the motion sensors on the M34 realized everyone in front of the camera had been murdered and there was no more reason to record. So this is not that and things are not as they seem for poor Captain Campana, who has just watched disturbing video. So uh, give us another more couple chapters more and we'll loop back around and see what's going on and what the reaction is uh, to seeing this video. But in the meantime, if you like um, my writing, you can go to uh, mindframepodcast.com Go into the merchandise store, and you can find my book, 181 Pine, and you can also find the fiction of Zach Smith, who helps us with the sit-down episodes, as well as all kinds of really cool merch, t-shirts, all sorts of stuff. Uh, We've been sort of, um, Brent has as producer extraordinaire. He's been uh, upping the hustle game for uh, gifts and stuff to our patrons, so... If you are a patron, you should be getting some cool stuff in the mail at some point soon. But um, go go check it out. Go to the, the the shop and you'll find some good stuff. And as always, you can support us on patreon.com slash mindframe podcast. Um, if you go to uh, Podbelly, um, you can find some other great shows such as Art and Jacob Do America and Robots for Eyes. They're both really good shows uh, that you can check out. Um, you can also check out our other podcast that myself and Brent and my friend Brad do, which is called the Sofa King podcast. It is definitely not safe for work, but we research topics that our listeners propose. We tell a lot of uh, off-color jokes and uh, inform you about whatever it is from serial killers to corporations to to cryptids, we cover it, so it might be something worth a listen to. Um, one of the best ways that you can support us in spite of anything else, um, and it's completely free is to just use the social media power, your social media powers, leverage them in our favor. Give us a like, give us a share, give us a retweet. It really means a lot, just having other people in your circle. I mean, you've got friends that have the same taste as you, etc. When you share this information, they now like it, they dive into it. It gives us a, another listener and that's really how podcasts grow organically. Um, so we'd really appreciate it. So you can find us on Facebook at mindframe podcast you can find us on twitter at mindframe pod and you can find us on instagram instagram um, at uh, the mindframe podcast so uh, give us a share give us a like um, interact with us there ask us questions um, we're always happy to answer them either in that medium or on uh, our sit down episodes that we do But thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks for being a loyal supporter and listener of the Mindframe podcast. And as always, remember, the Lariat is closing.